Radio Yon the Air. Yo, what's up? This is Aaron calling from Yonkers. Yonkers! Y-O. What's up? What's up? Y-O. Yo, tell um, Peter O.H.'s still let Dominic run his show. <laughs> <laughs> Dominic, they want your show back, Dominic. <laughs> People and, and, have oh, Dominic is cool, but yo, he trying to be like a fool critic. The meatballs and all that. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to like, get a job with the New York Times and Time <laughs> Magazine. Tell him. That's it. National Geographic. He just used you guys as a springboard. He ain't really no hip-hop fan. Mm. Yeah, it's all good, so keep up the good work. Yeah, no doubt. Thanks for the call. Yeah, forget about Navani leaving. Exactly. If you want to call up and talk about Dominic's show, show and what's wrong with it, give us a call. 212-998-1818 is the number. Well, let me throw something into this mix. It's something that bothers me, so let's hope I don't start screaming. But um, it's if you came to me, Dharmic, and you wanted to be a client, I gave you a simple little speech. I told you that if you expect me to make an image, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask and then sit back in my seat and tell you with that image I'm going to make you a star, I'll call my best competitor, I'll get you a meeting within two hours. If you're going to work with me, the rules are totally different. Um, we are going to do the equivalent of shamanism. We are going to go as deep as, into your soul as we possibly can. When you sit down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to write a lyric and you've got a blank laptop screen or a blank piece of paper, it scares the hell out of you. <laughs> and you are absolutely certain you can never write another lyric again in your life, and you wonder where in the world the lyrics you have written came from. And on a really good day at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lyric there. And on a really, really good day, it feels as if the lyric wrote itself, as if it has its own self-standing identity, totally independent of you. And then you go out on stage in front of an audience. And when you have one of those brilliant nights where the pupils of the audiences open wide and their faces seem to melt and it seems as if the energy from all of them comes together, it starts pouring through you and you're no longer in charge. And something dances you as if you're a marionette. You're a, an empty pipe for all of this energy from the audience that goes up to something. Um, the, the leader of the Who, Peter Townsend, used to call it the Godhead and is multiplied and transmogrified and totally changed and comes pouring back through you again. Well, so my job, if you're going to work with me, is to find the you that wrote those lyrics. It's to find the you that dances you like a marionette on stage. That's a you inside of you that you don't normally know. And my job is not just to find it. It's to introduce you to the you that knows how to say when somebody says, how are you? That knows how to say, fine, thank you very much, and how are you? To the verbal you. So, because music, I would tell you, if you were coming to me, what we're doing here is not about money, it is not about downloads, it is not about marketing, it is not about branding. Those are um, the terms of inanimate objects. And what we're dealing with in music is soul. It's just absolute soul. And it comes bursting out of you in ways you can't control if you're a good performer. And it brings something bursting to the surface in the people you touch. So it is a soul exchange we're talking about. If you're willing to tolerate that, and I'm willing to give me a day, anywhere from a day to three days, of just you alone in your environment with no other person in between us, no wife, no manager, no nothing, I will find that soul, the gods inside of you, that rip and roar and rage when you are on stage. And I will introduce you to it. And I will use that as the basis for everything we do. And then you're going to be stuck with the fact, I'm going to come back every year because that soul inside of you, that secret flame, 
changes every year. It stays true to a certain core, but it changes. You are changing. Your whole generation is changing. And I'm going to come back and find who you are this year. And that's what we're going to work with. So that was the deal. Now, all of that has disappeared yeah. from music. And now it's back to marketing and downloads and uh, commercial things of all kinds that dehumanize the artist and dehumanize the audience. And I ache for the day when music will rehumanize. Because music, no matter what you do to it, music is universal. Music's been around for thousands of years. In fact, we know it's been around for approximately 36,000 years. We found bone flutes. 36,000 years old, mm -hmm. it does something for us. And it will do it no matter how badly record executives screw up. But if they understand what they're dealing with, we will offer so much more because if you're going to be my act, I'm going to make you an icon. Now, what does that mean? An icon is somebody you put posters of in your bedroom when you're 11 and a half years old. An icon is somebody whose life you study, whose daily movements you study. An icon is, you know what a trellis is in a garden? Mm -hmm. It's this wooden thing and tomato plants and stuff like that get their form by climbing the trellis. You as an icon are a trellis in w on which hundreds of thousands and possibly hundreds of millions of people are going to grow. And I'm going to make darn sure that you are a trellis of value to yourself and to your fellow human beings. So that's what we were in the business of, nurturing the soul of humans, nurturing the soul of subcultures, nurturing the soul of society. And... The music industry at some point, the entire entertainment industry, needs to know that that's what they are dealing with. When they are dealing with the Scarlett Johansson or the ingenue of the moment, it's not just their high little breasts that they're dealing with. They're dealing with who she is, what she stands for to herself, what her ideals are, what she ideally wants to achieve, what comes ripping and roaring out of her when she's in front of a camera and a whole bunch of lights, and what that has to say to an audience that needs to find itself too. Howard, I have a question for you. Is it possible to pull that soul out of someone who doesn't have soul? Because I, I feel like there are a lot of musicians and, and a lot of artists now who don't have that soul or don't have that God-given talent. And even someone such as yourself would not be able to pull something out of it. I failed roughly 40 to 50% of the time. Um, I found that that soul in Billy Idol. I found it in Billy Joel. I found it in... Um, in John Mellencamp, uh, I found it in Prince, um, certainly in Bob Marley, um, that I was lucky because it was findable by my techniques, whatever. And my technique is tuned empathy. You know, we all have these things called motor neurons, and when you see somebody pick up a cup of coffee, our motor neurons use all the, the all of the neurons that they need to pick up a cup of coffee. We feel that cup, big cup of coffee being picked up, and we. And what, what are movies all about? They're getting us to feel something through the actors, through the body of the actors. So there are people who don't, I haven't been able to find the soul of. And, but I regard that as my failure, not as the failure of the artist to have a soul. Because if you're motivated, like Kiss and Gene Simmons, who's just fabulous, he's an amazing human being. Um, if you are motivated to risk your entire life on music, and that's what it takes... It means you're not going to learn the skills you need to be an accountant. You're not going to come out with the degrees it would take to be an English professor mm -hmm. um, or a, a quant on, uh, on Wall Street. You're going to bet everything you've got on the very weird notion that you could be one the, the one in ten million who ends up having enough talent to make it in the music industry. If you're going to make that bet, 
there's a passion inside of you and there's a discipline inside of you and that's the beginning of your soul definitely um you know i guess after you just did that soul searching with the artist you know help them discover that what was next in the process for you? the next thing in the process was on the plane back to new york city to sit there with my laptop because even in uh, 1983 um, Radio Shack came out with a TRS-101 a one pound laptop computer that operated on four batteries four normal batteries for 24 hours and it would it, it came with 8K of memory mm-hmm. and if you were a techie like me you could goose it to 24K of memory so the trick was to go through I'd learned when I was a journalist when I was uh, a magazine editor don't rely on a tape recorder when you're doing an interview. Take notes, even though you might be manually incompetent. Take notes because it makes you concentrate. And remember something. When somebody says something and you didn't quite catch it, say, you just said something interesting. Could we go back a second and could you say that again? It's flattery. But you mean it because you need that information. So you took your notes and you, I typed them into the computer, and then I started putting them into a chronological story. Chronology is a very basic tool of the human mind in understanding things. And when you put things in a chronological order, guess what? A jumble of stuff becomes a story. But I would take you through the story of your life from the first time you remember anything about music in chronological order all the way on up to the present. And I would make you tell me details so I could be like a camera in the room, so I could feel like a camera in the room. What did the room look like? What was your neighborhood like? What did your parents do for a living? The things that filled in the detail. And I would put this stuff in chronological order looking for passion points, for imprinting points, for those key moments, like in Prince's case. His first real heavy-duty interest in music came when his mom took him to see a rehearsal of his father. So Prince walks into this auditorium, anywhere from 500 to 3,000 seats, and they're all pointed at the center of the stage. All the seats are pointed in that direction. So even though it's an empty theater, there's an implied attention. Plus, his dad is in a spotlight on stage, and his dad is in the spotlight, and behind his dad, there are five of the most gorgeous women he's ever seen in his life. That's it. That's his imprinting moment. And most imprinting moments have everything in the world to do with attention and sexuality. Because we are sexual creatures, period. Mm -hmm. And music is at the very root of that. So the guys who grew up watching the Beatles or Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show and seeing all those screaming girls paying attention and willing to drop their pants, um, that made a big impression and some people imprinted on that. Then the Beatles, 10 years later, came along and the same thing happened. Screaming girls ready to drop their pants. And a lot of men in the rock and roll business imprinted on that you looked for these imprinting points you looked for a moment of drama that that formed that soul and then once you'd organized all of this so it was a story you brought it back to prince and you said here's what i want you to say every time you have an interview because an interview is going to walk in and he's going to ask really stupid questions like how do you categorize your music what does that lead to nothing Absolutely nothing. And in exchange for those questions, you have to change the subject and tell him the story. And you have to be like a prostitute. A prostitute has to make you, give you the impression that you're the only guy in the world that she's ever had intercourse with during the time that you're with her. Well, you have to know, I'm going to put you through eight interviews a day. But those interviewers do not want to be treated as assembly line people. So you don't say, and as I said to the guy who was just in the room, because that brings another person into the room with you. You give your story. And then the guy goes home at night and he says, honey, you know, I asked the most brilliant question today. How do you categorize your music? And I got this amazing story. And that's your job. 
because you you are using that journalist and you're not using the journalist because the journalist is making his money off of what you are offering to him but ultimately the, the journalist is a megaphone and a megaphone to your audience and what you that your audience has to know this story because they're going to grow up on you and here's something they can grow up on here's something that says hey i had imprinting moments too just like you did so i schooled my artists mm-hmm. in their own story and prince made me do it over and over again every time he came up with a new act vanity sheila e um wendy and lisa uh the time uh, i was in bed with a back problem for six months and i was you know laying there naked under the sheets with a telephone on the bed uh, near the bed so that i could make deals between london and la and stuff like that and I got a call from uh, Bob Cavallo's office, and they said, Prince's next act, uh, Prince needs you to do what you do with, with his next act. And I said, but I can't. I'm laying here in bed. They said, give us the address. We'll be there tomorrow morning. And sure enough, I had to put clothes on for this, but sure enough, there were a, a, a limousine pulled up to my house, which at that point was in a neighborhood that was really slum-like, and nobody would seen a limo on my block before, and out walks this guy in a perfectly pressed zoot suit, as if he's got a stylist that somehow comes out every 10 seconds and presses, him all, presses his clothes all over again, and walks up the three flights of dusty stairs to my apartment, and when the door opens, one one of our dogs gooses him from the rear, and the other one gooses him from the front, and he's ushered into my bedroom where I'm laying there, and yeah, we did our thing. It was worst day of the time. It's very, but, but the most important thing is the soul-finding aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then you also did a lot of interaction with journalists, but you were very targeted. I remember hearing you say something like about... Well, journalists, there, there was this... Journalists are like sheep. We're all like sheep to a certain extent. But journalists in particular are like sheep. And in 1827 or so, Carlyle, the, Thomas Carlyle, the, the great social commentator who came up with the great man theory of history, Carlyle told a story. The pop culture of his time, the rap music of his time, was theater. And it was theater that was trying to produce two emotions, pity and terror. It was measured by, by how well it did with those two emotions. And there was a whole clique of critics for this stuff and so carlisle in trying to explain this clique said look i have a friend who's this new thing called a naturalist this is remember 30 years before darwin's um first book and and he was out in the countryside and you know those little lanes in between two rows of poplar trees and they're deeply rutted and they they're just wide enough for one person so if you're taking a girl on a date she has to walk either behind you or in front of you holding hands is really difficult those lanes are that narrow because they're sheep lanes and whole herds of sheep will line up in single file and go down those lanes so my friend the naturalist said carlisle took his cane and stuck it out in front of a lead sheep there were sheep coming up the path stuck it in front of the alpha sheep the lead sheep and the lead sheep jumped over the cane he left the cane there for the second sheep the beta sheep and sheep number two jumped over the cane then he withdrew his cane what do you think the other 198 sheep did they all jumped when they got to that spot even though there wasn't anything to jump over anymore and this carlisle said is the way the press operates well that was true in 1817 or 1827 and it's true today. So you have to find the lead sheep and influence that lead sheep somehow. Yeah, and and I've heard you you know say that you've spent a lot of effort doing that. Um, we're we're nearing the end of of our time. I think the the big question I have for you. You said that earlier that um, 
the music industry and, and will rehumanize again, um, or you, that it needs to rehumanize. It needs again. to. I, where there's no guarantee that it ever will. So another prophet has to come out of the desert. I like I came out of the world of microbiology and theoretical physics and a hunt, scientific hunt for the gods inside. Somebody has to come along who's a preacher, an evangelizer, and who's persuasive. Now I got to be persuasive because my ex went from, in many cases, from total anonymity to some of the biggest superstars in the industry. So people believed me they they were willing to listen they need another figure of that kind i would love to go back to them and explain all of this to them again but i haven't had that opportunity i mean i feel like the biggest difference is the the thought process i feel like publicists in this day and age we we have they have email social media all these things and they're just that thought process that sort of uh looking into the mind of an artist etc uh it just isn't there right um the what, media and this process of soul is like a hammer and if nobody's ever invented the house then the hammer's just going to sit there but once somebody invents the idea of the house which is the idea of soul in music then all of a sudden you can do incredible things with the hammer yep there you go